I'm Mike Sheridan, and this is The Bell. Hey folks, you're very welcome along to another episode of The Delve. It's episode four, brought to you as always by Spotlight Oral Care. Use the code DELVE25 and you get 25% off at checkout of anything on site. So we're four episodes in. It's uh, It feels like the season is flying in and this guest is a fascinating individual. I know I say that for, for most of them, but Chris Voss was the Chief International Hostage Negotiator for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He was a B-cop before then, and it's just an all-around fascinating dude. He's also written a best-selling book called Never Split the Difference. I read it a few months back, wanted to speak to him right away. Thankfully, we were able to, to sort that out. And at the time of recording this from a few weeks, recording a conversation from a few weeks ago, his masterclass, he has, he has a, one in the masterclass series, was the most popular one. One of his chapters was the most popular one. And when you consider the amount of people involved in at the Martin Scorsese's, the Ron Howard's, the Anna Winters. That's a pretty big deal. Chris is now the CEO of the Black Swan Group, who travel all around the world, uh, training people in corporations. And he is a fascinating man and a really, really sound, cool guy. So enjoy the conversation and make sure to like, subscribe and all that crack. Thanks a million, guys. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Yeah, it's ha- um, I'm happy to do so. How's everything over there with you at the moment? What part of the country are you in? I live in Las Vegas and uh, it's relatively uh, calm, for lack of a better term. In the middle of the desert? In the middle of the desert, yeah. Yeah, the desert's nice, man. I mean, I really like the desert a lot. So, so- I sort of found myself here by accident and it turns out to be serendipitous. I have to say, before we kind of really get going, uh, I put up on my Insta stories that I was reading your book a few months ago, and I've never had a response like it. Genuinely, really? Yeah, genuinely people were dropping into my, uh, into my DMs, and I, I, mentioned a friend, I mentioned to a friend, uh, Gordon, who's a broadcaster here as well, that I was speaking to you, and I've never seen this guy so excited. He's been interviewing people for 15 years, and he wasn't even getting the speeches. So Gordon asked me to pass on, that he's a huge fan of your masterclass as well. Wow. Cool. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. So I suppose like it's, it's, it's kind of, we're all in a bit of a funny space right now. I've done a couple of these. I'm, not, I'm used to sitting down and speaking to people or having people come into a studio or have me go to them with a crew. And the first thing I would do if I was meeting you somewhere would be to shake your hand and, and look you in the eye. And, <laughs> and none of us can do that now. So how do you think that is going to unfold going forward for be it in a corporate sense, be it in a, you know, a broadcasting sense like this. It's a tricky one to navigate, right? I think it's going to end up being a real good add-on overall. I mean, I think um, it's going it's to force, it's gonna force everybody to learn how to communicate better this way. And then when we can start getting back together, that will have almost become a bit of the status quo. And then, but then we'll go back to interacting with each other and we'll start to see how they fit together better. I mean, I think, uh, I think the net, the net is going to be a significant gain. It's just, it's so awkward right now. 
So do you see it as kind of becoming more of a positive as, as everything kind of moves on and we move past, I mean, we're recording this in early May, but when we move past COVID, that it's more of a, like, it can also be an opportunity. I'm, I'm trying to look at it as an interviewer, as an opportunity to reach out to people who wouldn't be able to fly to necessarily. Yeah, exactly. I, I think I think it's absolutely going to end up being a net gain. I mean, I think, you know, I don't know what the best analogy is, you know, in, in the natural world, forests had fires and when it was over and it grew back the force was always better so and i think this is we rarely have change forced on us so hard and so fast but i you know i'm an optimistic guy i'm I'm, i definitely believe things continually get better and uh, speaking of analogies you had a really interesting analogy for what you do where you um, aligned yourself somewhat with Phil Jackson. Uh, I, was, I was listening to a podcast you did, and you, like the NBA wouldn't be particularly huge here, but the last dance has just, I think, exploded everywhere in ESPN. So Phil Jackson wow. is, is obviously a big coach. He coached, coached Michael Jordan. Um, yeah. where, where did that analogy come from? Because you were kind of, you were dropped into these different places all over the world to help coach um, like the local yeah. negotiators, I suppose. Yeah, uh, I think, um, I can't remember when I first got turned on. I think I first started reading Phil's stuff before he went to coach for the Lakers. He wrote a book called Sacred Hoops. And uh, he talked about the blend of, you know, his spiritualism because he was kind of a hippie guy, you know, and he grew up, he had, he had, uh, his parents were both uh, uh, Protestant ministers the last dance doesn't really emphasize it as much as he did in his book, but his mother was the, was the Bible beater of the two. I mean, she was, uh, you know, you're going to hell, fire and brimstone. She was, a, she was a hard one. So then he, but he was on an American Indian reservation and he's exposed to American Indian spirituality. And then somewhere along the way, I think he found Buddhism. And so his entire philosophy was a combination of those things. And I was just like, I was into it, you know, like spiritualism, that's a blend of a variety of religions. And I remember reading that and I, then I got, I got, I wear an American Indian ring. And that's one of the reasons because of his respect for the spirituality. of it. And so then somewhere along the line, I heard Jeff Van Gundy point out that the best coaches are never the best players. There are always players that weren't quite the best, and they had to work really hard to figure it out. And I thought, geez, that's exactly Phil Jackson, you know. So, I, you know, and and if if I tell if I try to tell people that I'm the best negotiator in the world, first of all, it's going to be nonsense. <laughs> but then they're going to be intimidated by that, you know. They're going to be really worried, and I think it makes my coaching for people it makes me more approachable for me to say like, no, I'm not necessarily the best in the world. I like to think I'm the best coach, but I was never the best player. And I, you know, I just want people to be able to, to, to find me more approachable. And that's one of the reasons. And I, plus I also think it's completely true. You see, when you think that somebody like Phil has a Kobe, uh, who's a legend or a Michael Jordan, who are top of their game at the time, or the legacy that's top of their game, where you, you don't know a lot of the time, I would guess about what you're going in and who you're going to be dealing with locally and that who right. you're going to have to coach to negotiate these life or death situations. Is that, is that a whole other thing that you need to grapple with? You need to kind of figure out your personalities, figure out how to best approach them. And is that 
a kind of a separate negotiation in itself because these guys are learning on the job and as you're trying to coach them. We'll find out pretty quickly who's coachable. You know, it's, it just, you start talking to people and you get a family, you get a bunch of people in the family, you get business people. I mean, you know, you say something and people, it goes over their head, they don't compute it. Or they, you say something you know is new to them, and the guy goes like, "Oh, well, that that's the guy's coachable." You know, I got I got a I got a buddy of mine, <laughs> a very good friend of mine. We went to high school together, Tom McCabe. He is the he's the head of the development head of country, head of U.S. for the Development Bank of Singapore. So he's the head of an entire country, and we're both from the same small town in Iowa. And he's got no advanced degree. Like I got a, I got a master's from Harvard. Tom doesn't have that. He's got nothing. And he's the head of an international bank. He's, uh, you know, he's done an IBM Watson commercial. Bob Dylan did an IBM Watson commercial. Tom did an IBM Watson commercial. We're from the same small town in Iowa. That's, that's how impressed I am with this guy. But anyway, he likes to say he looks for, he looks for people with flat heads and you go, Flat heads? What do you mean flat heads? He goes, yeah, it's w- when you tell them something, they go like, oh, God, I should have seen that. <laughs> is that. Is that like a level of emotional intelligence, right? That's, is that what that is? Obviously, there's hard work involved and he's, he's good at what he does. Yeah. But is so much of that been able to read rooms and be able to, you know, I know you talk about tactical empathy and that, but it, emotional, intelligence, emotional intelligence seems to be a huge part of it. Well, I would call it first is, is, is a chicken and egg cart, you know, chicken and egg thing here, which is first. I would call it first coachability. I mean, I think everybody is born with the wiring for emotional intelligence. Now, how quickly they pick it up, how coachable are they? Um, I think I'm really coachable. You know, I think I'm, I, I don't care what the best way to do something is. I just want to know what it is. Like, you know, in a whole harsh interrogation techniques debate over terrorists. Like, I actually don't care which one works. All I want to know is what works. Is it, is it rapport-based interrogation? Is it harsh interrogation? If harsh interrogation was more effective, I'd be in favor of it. I happen to know it's not. I've known that for a very long time. But... You know, the people that say it's more effective, they can't make that case and in any debate. And so, you know, the, the bottom line is any debate, I really don't care what works. I just want to know what works. And I think that makes me coachable. Um, you know, Tom McCabe's emotional intelligence is astonishing. I don't know whether he's, which one he started out with, whether it was coachability or emotional intelligence. I remember we played basketball together in high school. Um, I was struck. He was always a very personable guy, very sociable, very outgoing. I, he grew up in that environment. You know, his, he and his brothers were some of the funniest human beings I ever ran across in my entire life. So, so he was always, he was always loud. (laughs) And I, and when I was in college, I watched him do things in 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 bars you know we grew up in the days of disco you know i turn around and he's up in the dj's booth 
singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game for the crowd. <laughs> They've shut off a Donna Summer song so he and another guy can sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game. And you, and you look at that and you go like, the world has gone mad. <laughs> That's almost like an introvert and an extrovert as well, right? Because even right now, you know, some people have a lot of energy because they're introverts are used to this. Uh, other people get energy off people and they're, they're struggling a little bit, right? So it's that, yeah. it's that kind of balance too. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, very true. And, and, we, and you keep reminding me of a phone call I got placed to an extroverted friend of mine. Because those of us that are happy for the extra alone time, you know, it's killing them. They, those guys are not okay. And, you know, I've, I've, got a, I've got a mastermind group, you know, it's more of a personal mastermind than a professional mastermind. And he's part of that personal mastermind in L.A. And we're meeting via Zoom now. And when the last conversation we had as a group, he, he came out and said, guys, I am not okay. And all of us are like, that didn't occur to any of us. And that makes all the sense in the world. That's fascinating. So it's it's a case of almost asking sometimes and letting them know that it's okay uh, to to say that or to have that conversation too. Um, yeah. You uh, you had kind of not learning on the job was obviously difficult in the in the job that you did in the FBI for for so long. But what I found one of the things I found really fascinating about the book was when you decided you wanted to go into this department, and um, you went and you know put yourself forward first. And the lady who worked in the department, the head of the department, told you to go and work for a suicide uh, uh, helpline for, for a while. And you went and yeah. did that, and then you came back. So yeah. what, what did you learn from that experience? Because, it, again, it is, not a jo- it is not a job you can learn trial by fire. You cannot learn by doing this job. Uh, one would assume when the stakes are so high. Nah, you know, uh, that, that was, I learned a lot of things. First of all, I learned how quickly empathy accelerates decision-making. Um, and I remember the first thing, time, thing I was blown away by when I got there, they right off the bat, they said, all right, so you guys need to know up front, we have a time limit on every call, it's 20 minutes. And in point of fact, if it takes you 20 minutes to get something done, you're probably doing it wrong. If you do what we teach you to do, you're going to get done really fast. And I remember thinking like, that's insane. No, that's not possible. So I think I learned, I, I came to appreciate really how much of an accelerator empathy really is. Um, you know, we didn't know what emotional intelligence was back then. Nobody had any idea. Daniel Coleman hadn't come along. The phraseology wasn't out there. So I learned that. And then I also, I was astonished at the difference in my communication tech that I'd learned. They did this really, this really good thing. Um, day one, you know, you go into the training, they give you a list of 10 possible things that somebody might say in a line. And so underneath, you're supposed to write what your response to that would be. And then you give, you give, you give the sheet back. Now, I completely forget that we've done this sheet. Uh, training takes two, two months. You know, we're in there one night a week. It's basically, um, you know, it was, it was, it was good solid two weeks condent, you know, spread out over two months. Anyway, enough time had passed. They hand us back the sheets. Now, my old boss used to say, my handwriting looks like I write with my feet. It's, it's legible, but it really is just like really bad. <laughs> so when they gave me that sheet of paper back, I recognized my handwriting. 
And if I wasn't so sure it was my handwriting, if you'd have told me I said those things, I'd have called you to a liar. I, I'd have called you a liar to your face. I'd have said to you, I would never have been stupid enough in my entire life to ever say anything that stupid as a response to somebody in crisis. But it's my handwriting, so there's no, <laughs> there's no denying it. And I remember just being astonished, you know, and I had no idea that I'd traveled that much space in that shorter period of time. So, you know, it's relatively, if you get into it, you could pick it up. And so knowing that and learning that on a hotline, like, okay, so there's a long distance to be traveled here, but you can travel it quickly if you get into it. I think those were the two biggest things that I took away from that learning. Was learning to listen a huge part of it as well? Or was that something you felt it already had from being a B cop and from being in the FBI? I had no, well, yeah, yeah, no, I had no idea. I didn't know how to listen. I mean, I just, you, you know, we assume that in, in, we must be listening when we're not talking because we're either talking or listening, right? And, you know, that is, just because you shut up doesn't mean you listen. <laughs> I mean, that is nowhere near the case. Not, uh, it ain't even close. And so, yeah, I mean, I just, I had, I had, I had no idea. No, no idea what listening actually was or that it was, I mean, it was so highly proactive, interactive. You know, we didn't look at it as proactive at the time. And it's now why we talk about, you know, me and my team, why we discuss tactical empathy, because it's highly proactive. Um, I mean, it's, it's highly proactive. It's highly tactical. You know, the human mind is eminently predictable. It's been mapped. You know, psychologists kind of had a sense for kind of maybe how it might work. Um, but with neuroscience, we know how it works. I mean, it, it's, it's not a question. It's become hard science. So if you know how it works and you know how, how people shift their thinking and decision making, all right, let's kick it into gear. Let's be proactive. If I know that I'm getting ready to say something that's going to upset you, I mean, you don't got to be a genius to know that somebody's not going to like what you're getting ready to say. If you, because people say it all the time, look, I don't want you to be angry. That meant they knew you were going to get angry. And you could predict that within a 95% probability. So if I also know that if before I make you angry, I say, look, this is going to make you angry. That either you won't be angry at all or it'll minimize it to the degree that you had no idea that ever happened. If I know from doing this enough times, then that's just, that's stupid of me not to anticipate that. Is that why you think, uh, I know the, uh, the tactical empathy is one of the most viewed chapters or the most viewed chapter on the masterclass series. Is that why you think it's, it's, it's reverberated so much that people have yeah, responded to it so much because it was already there almost. Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of crazy. There's a lot of stuff about that that is kicked out that I know that masterclass is astonished by because I, I talked to him about it also. Um, the, uh, not just that it's their most viewed course and their ads. I mean, the idea that more people are paying attention to me than Martin Scorsese is just absurd. That, I mean, is, uh, uh, that's a sign of the apocalypse. <laughs> but what you're but teaching that, them, I suppose they can put into practice, right? 
they can put it into practice. I mean, yeah. it's this, it's this, it's cons- negotiation has consistently been shown to be this unmet need. Like every organization we've ever come across, whether it be a company or whether it be a professional organization, every time they're astonished at their people's appetite for negotiation. Every single time. And before the book came out, we used to have discussions with people. And they said, look, we're surveying our people and they're not asking for negotiation. And we know our people. You know, it's kind of like a misinterpretation of the data or, you know, if you looked at your data, you've got solid data to say that the sun goes around the earth. Your observable data, it's inarguable that when you get up in the morning, the sun's over there and you stand still and you watch the sun go across the sky. And at the end of the day, it's over there. That's inarguable. And you are completely wrong. And so, and, but, and then the other thing that, that has blown everybody away is the audience and the buyers for negotiation are predominantly male. Like I've, if I go to, I, I spoke at Google Talks. There were a hundred people in a room. We brought 30 books. The bookseller afterwards, like I could have sold 60 books. Later that day, I'm at a talk, all women, 150 women. We don't move 20 books, not 20. That happens over and over and over again. I speak at a conference, 300 women in a room. There are 300 of my books on a table outside the hall that they walk out of. They're free. All they got to do is pick them up. Fully half the books don't get touched. We get data over and over and over again that it's hard to get women to pick up something about negotiation. On masterclass, the women are going nuts for it. It is all over the place. They are astonished at how heavily skewed the response rate is towards women. There's no way anybody could have guessed that. So we're trying to, you know, we're trying, we're trying to figure all this out. What is it about the presentation? Is it the environment? Is it because when they walked out of a room full of women that they were embarrassed to pick up a negotiating book in front of their colleagues or, and, and if they were embarrassed, what exactly were they embarrassed about? Because to say that they're embarrassed doesn't tell you enough. But in, in the privacy of a masterclass setting, they're eating it up. So there's a lot of fascinating stuff out there that we just can't predict. We, you know, who'd, who'd have thought? Hey guys, sorry to interrupt the show. I just wanted to briefly tell you about our sponsor for this season of The Delve, Spotlight Oral Care, which is an Irish company founded by two Irish dentists. Uh, They're a sustainable company, they're an ethical company. So long story short about me and my teeth, I had my teeth straightened a couple of years ago. It made me hyper aware of oral care in general. Spotlight Oral Care really recognized that and do products specific for people. And so I've been using their men's teeth whitening strips for a couple of weeks now. I've found them fantastic. I've also been using, which is the the crown and the jewel for me, uh, the Sonic Toothbrush, which is just a phenomenal product. It's got three different settings and it's got a two minute timer. So you're you're cleaning your teeth for two minutes 
I'm using their uh, sensitive toothpaste and you're cleaning your teeth for two minutes and it just switches off. You're like, okay, I've brushed my teeth for the sufficient amount of time. They've also given us a discount code of DELVE25. So if you use the code DELVE25, you'll get 25% off any Spotlight oral care products on their site. Back to the show. Another interesting thing as well I thought about, uh, about Never Split the Difference was you're not afraid to tackle, you know, when things have gone wrong. You know, and in such high stakes situations, it's obviously horrific when it does. But in Dos Palmas in the, in the Philippines, it went horribly wrong and it was uncontrollable on, on numerous levels. Um, and it was obviously a very frustrating experience and ultimately a tragic and horrific experience. How do you deal with the, when, when things go so horribly wrong and there's such, you know, a reverberation of horrificness afterwards, for want of a better phrase? Do you compartmentalize it? And just move on. Like it, it must be hard to let these things to these things go, or is it a case of not hanging on to the, the positives as much as well and just moving on to the next? Case? Well, it, it, yeah, you know, you end up dealing with those stages. And, I'm, and before I finish the answer, I'm going to go back because see, putting that putting that case in the way we put it in, that's tall rods. I had, I had, tall rods was the fourth writer that that we worked with on a project. And Tal Raz did not write the book proposal. Another, another guy wrote the book proposal. But that was a critical difference because the guy that wrote the book proposal, who did, you know, he got, he got us a massive deal. So, you know, the proposal got me a long, long, long way. But in that discussion with him, I wanted to talk honestly about those Palmas. And he's like, no, 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 you can't do that. We're not, we're not going to put your failures in a book. You know, you're an expert. We got to hold you to a standard. People got to know, got to uh, figure that you're at this standard. So at the time, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm theoretically, I'm willing to be guided by somebody who's supposed to know what they're talking about. Now I know I got a lot better feel for who really knows what they're talking about and why. But um, I remember at the time thinking like, ah, all right, I'll go along with you. But I got to tell you that I'm troubled by that. So we, we get into the book process, we switch over to Tall, and we get on that exact issue. And he goes, no. He goes, no, you're a human being. You know, people, people got to know that you're a human being. We're going to talk candidly about everything. There's nothing we're not going to talk candidly about. And I'm like, wow, that's a relief. Cool. Because that was my gut, but I'm not the writer. You know, I, 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 you hire an expert, theoretically, you gotta, got to make sure you got the right expert. You got to be listening to your expert, right? And that was part of me learning the subtlety of the differences and, you know, what kind of, who wrote what. Like, I wouldn't go to Tall Raw's to write a, a, a crime novel or a crime, a real life crime story. The previous writer was a real life crime story writer and had written phenomenal stuff, phenomenal stuff. And so now, now I know the difference. But then, all right, so how do you deal with that? You deal with it in stages. Um, for me, a mistake is the time to double down and get better. You know, we did, we, did a, we did a review, you know, and you make a mistake, you got one or two choices. Either you quit or you get better. Those are the only choices. Now, either one of them might be a viable choice. And I, I, wish, I wish I could think of his name. One of the Harvard Business School guys. Um, teaches negotiation and he's got, he's got a great talk. His students have always loved him. And he, he, his philosophy is quit your way to success. Like if something's not for him, he says, screw it. And he moves on. 
and he and that process took him to Harvard Business School where he's ridiculously happy. So his strategy is I quit my way to success. All right, so that's one viable uh, outcome. That that's not my <laughs> that's not me, but you know, that's no bad on either one of us. For me, especially in hostage negotiation was you got to you have to go down. And then I want to see what you're made of when you go down. And I what my I, we did an after action on on the the burn thing. What do we do wrong? Now we didn't do anything wrong. So to me, that tells me we got to get better. You know, double down and get out. And my my view was to double down. Um, and then consequently, in that business, you have to recruit people that have gone down in flames and decided to double down because they're going to, they're going to face the same catastrophe in some format. Again, an ambassador is going to look them in the eye and tell them no. And you got to be willing to tell the ambassador boss, you're in charge, but I quit. If you don't do it, we are out of here or some, some commander, you have to be willing to go to the mat over and you have to be willing to go down over what you believe to be what's right. If you're in a, if you're literally in a life saving business. And so then I would watch the cases in every single negotiator somewhere around double digits. And in point of fact, most negotiators don't get to double digit cases. So they probably never had a failure, but I always look for the guys and the gals that have been through failures and showed their resilience by coming back because they were either going to, they were either going to double down and they were going to get better or they were going to quit. They were going to say, you know, this is negotiation stuff. This ain't for me. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to go work crime scene. You know, I'm going to do something where people don't die in front of me. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Why do you and think then I would there? recruit them specifically for that reason. And they would go and they would go, why are you coming to me? I, you know, somebody just got killed on my watch. And I would say, that's exactly why I'm coming to you. Why do you think they, they burn out? Why do they not get to that, to those double digits? So just, it's too much, just it, well, life or that it, situation. It, like you, said? you know, in point, in point of fact, most negotiators, you just don't get that many opportunities. I mean, unless you're on, unless you're running the, the team that's going overseas, you might go overseas once a year because uh, every negotiator's got a day job. So uh, every negotiator, you start out with it as an additional duty. So you, you might, you might get out the door once a year because you got a day job, you got a family, you got a boss that you're accountable to. He's got cases he wants you to work. If you're a negotiator and you're any good, you are making cases in your division. And you are making your boss look good. And the last thing your boss wants to do is lose you for three weeks while you're out running around Africa. <laughs> so your boss is going to give you grief about how many times you go disappear for three weeks at a time. And if you're making cases, you have people in your life that have, you have great relationships with. And, and you, you might not be married, but you get, you get women that value you and want to be around you. You probably got kids. You get people that, that have, you have great relationships with, and they're not going to want you to drop out of sight for three weeks. 
because you're an important part of their life. And if you go on an international case, you have just gone in WITSEC for three weeks. You are, they're not going to hear from you. They're not going to talk to you. I'm going to, you're going to go work for me and I'm going to have you on call 24 seven. I'm going to call you and wake you up at two o'clock in the morning. and want to know what's going on. And when the sun rises, you're going to be up because the bad guys are up. So you're not going to be in touch with home for three weeks and your, and your, your wife, your girlfriend, your kids, they're not going to like that. So that means you're probably going to be out the door. You're going to walk the grid no more than once a year. Um, I don't want to keep you much longer, uh, Chris. Really appreciate your time. But uh, <laughs> I've been babbling. I apologize. Not at all. Not at all. It's really answers. fascinating stuff, uh, as I expected, to be honest. But you, uh, you mentioned the name, I think, recently enough as well, because I was wondering who you feel gets it right in any aspects, you know, whether politics, business, movies, whatever it is. And the name Bob Iger came up because I just, I just finished his book as well a, a couple of months ago. And he yeah. just seems to be somebody, like probably the most successful CEO in the world right now. I know he's moving on from Disney or wherever else he's doing. But why do you think Bob Iger gets it so right? I think because um, he just really is good at understanding where people are coming from. And he's good at deference. And he's really focused on what works. And whoever he's gone to work for, again, I, I, you know, I don't think he cares what the best approach is. He just wants to take the best approach. And he's smart enough to know he's probably got to take it within the leadership environment that he's got. And so when, a new, when, a, when there's a new sheriff in town, you know, he's in company after company that gets taken over. And those companies, you know, they're notorious for throwing people out. But it really gave me a, a completely different point of view. I mean, you take a company over, you don't want to throw those people out, but you don't want any insurrectionists either. So you know, no matter how talented they are, if they're an insurrectionist, they're going to cause more harm than good and you got to get rid of them. But if they're talented and they're not insurrectionists, you need their institutional knowledge, you need their experience base, they're going to bring a lot to the table. I think time after time, I argue was like, okay, there's a new sheriff in town. Uh, you know, maybe it was good the way it was before, but I like my job. I like what I do. And they, they do, they are ha happy to be in charge. And I think he's just like, all right, I'm going to adapt into this. And then pretty soon they're listening to him. And then pretty soon he's back in charge. <laughs> he learned how to manage upwards almost. As a, he talks about taking responsibility for something that wasn't necessarily his fault. And how his boss looked at him in a different way from then on inwards. He just put his hand up and went, yep, look, I'll, you know, I'll take the bullet on that one. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I it's just, it's phenomenal. It's one of the most enjoyable reads I ever went through. And it's, it's kind of funny, uh, you know, I, I met Lance Armstrong by accident and we're shooting a breeze and he, and I happen to bring up Iger and he goes, Hey, I, I, I know Iger. Do you want to meet him? And I'm like, as far as you know, does he want to meet me? <laughs> and he goes, no, I don't think so. He goes, and I go, okay, so no, I don't want to meet him. <laughs> and then he goes, that's exactly how we met. I go, that's interesting. Tell me. He says, we got a mutual friend. My mutual friend says, do you want to meet Bob Iger? And Lance is kind of like, ah, not that I know of. Do you, does he want to meet me? And the guy goes, not that I know of. 
And Lance is like, no, I don't introduce us. So then by sheer coincidence, the kids play football together. And they run into each other through that. And they both go, hey, nice to meet you. Um, and the same thing happened with them. They both reacted exactly. Look, if he don't want to meet me, I don't want to waste his time. And he found out that Iger reacted exactly the same way. Do you want to meet Lance Armstrong? No, nah, I don't think so. Does he want to meet me? No, nah, I don't think so. No, I don't introduce us. And it's just funny how people, you know, sort of resonate along those lines. You know, I don't want to waste anybody's time. <laughs> Look, yeah, I'm sure he's an interesting dude. But if I can't help him, I don't want to waste his time. And um, before I let you go, uh, one of the things that's come up constantly from speaking to friends about, about you in particular is your radio DJ voice. Was, was, <laughs> was, was moving into radio ever an option, Chris? Or, you know, this podcast <laughs> stuff now, the YouTube channel is very popular. I get it. I get it. I get it. You know, I have, I have thought about it, you know, and, and it's just like, and uh, the, <laughs> and women tend to respond to it also, you know, like I, I, I'm, I am, I do not think of myself as either particularly smart or I'm, I'm a plain dude in so many ways. And when a woman says, well, you got a sexy voice. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not used to being described that way. <laughs> Uh, come on, tell me some more, because I don't hear that that often. Now we know where there's so many women looking at the master class. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, I won't, keep you, I won't keep you any longer. really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. Um, and please thank uh, your assistant, Danielle, for me as well. She was incredibly helpful. Uh, this, I have really enjoyed this conversation, man. Let me know however I can help in the future. Really appreciate that, Chris. Thanks so much again for your time. Take care. Take care.